Richard R. Murrow broadcast team tell you uh, how they remember D-Day some 40 years ago. And uh, during the second hour, we're going to have several people who live in uh, this area recall some of those uh, same memories for you. First gentleman I'd like to uh, talk to, and we're going to try to do this chronologically if we can and uh, get across uh, the, the sort of the overall story, then we'll come back and just have a kind of a roundtable discussion about it. But first I'd like to chat with Ray Hayes. Now, uh, Ray is retired from uh, the Department of Dairy Science at the University of Illinois, and he worked uh, directly for General Eisenhower in what uh, was called the, the map room or the war room. Uh, what was the official name of that room, Ray? Uh, it was officially called the war room, but uh, many people referred to it as the map room. What was that room like? Well, it was a, a closed room originally, had no windows, only one door, with an MP station on the door 24 hours a day. And of course, you had to have special permission to get into this room. Could you describe for us the events uh, leading up to D-Day, uh, say the, the three days or two days prior? I know there were uh, some postponements and uh, that kind of thing, and a lot of it had to do with the weather. Well, the uh, original invasion, of course, was planned for June 5th, and it depended entirely on the weather, and they had to go in with a, a period of just a few days or the tides and so forth would not be right and it would have to be delayed for another month. And the weather at the time of the planned invasion was uh, not too good. And it, uh, the decision of General Eisenhower to go in or not depended somewhat on the uh, meteorologist's uh, forecast. Uh, it was interesting that the chief meteorologist, Group Captain Stagg, a British officer, uh, had his office right across the hall from us and uh, during these few days it was amazing the amount of tension and excitement that built up and uh, group captain Stagg uh, had to make this decision as to what the forecast would be and I know in those two or three days he seemed to walk around in, in, a, in a fog if you wish <laughs> he was just under so much tension uh, to give the right forecast to General Eisenhower, and that was a general setting at the time. Well, General Eisenhower, uh, I know on the one day, I believe the, the fourth, it was such a bright and shiny day, and he called a group Captain Stagg in and asked him about the, the weather, and he said, tomorrow's going to be awful, and it was uh, really difficult to, uh, to understand, but I, I saw Eisenhower on uh, television last night with Cronkite, and Sure enough, on the 5th, it was a terrible day with the wind and rain and, and so forth. And, and he said uh, to a Cronkite last night, General Eisenhower said, I, at that time, I gained a little more respect for Group Captain Stagg and to put a little more faith in his forecast. So uh, the decision then was uh, made to go, and uh, it's uh, one of those things that always falls back on one person, isn't it? You can have all the advisors in the world. You can have all the, the people under you and all these thousands of people and ships and, and airplanes waiting, but uh, yet it's, it's Eisenhower himself that has to say yay or nay. Uh, that's right. They, they had a meeting, and uh, along with some of the very uh, top officers, and General Eisenhower listened to all of them, and the weather was really uh, not the best, but uh, after listening to all these, he finally said, well, this is it. We'll go in on the 6th. 
And so the troops uh, began to uh, go to the beaches on uh, D-Day, and as you know by now, uh, there were uh, five main ones nicknamed Sword, Juno, Gold, Omaha, and Utah. And one of the people that helped uh, get the, the troops ashore was Dick McNatton. Uh, Dick uh, lives here in Champaign. He drove a LCVP, or piloted this. Uh, what kind of a, a, a ship is that, or boat is that, Dick? Well, it's a troop-carrying boat. It's 35 foot long, and uh, it's based aboard another type of a ship, a large ship like that. An LST is 350 foot long, and uh, they're hung on davits, and as they come within about 10 miles of the beach, they usually come to a stop. The ships do, or a very slow forward motion. Uh, we lower them into the water and put 30 soldiers on and then go into the beach. How long were you out there waiting? I know these postponements uh, were not too good for the, the people who were out there on the boats, and some were uh, out there for several days, evidently. Well, most of the waiting was done in England uh, in the harbors until they did make their decision to go. And then that's when we took off and uh, headed for, for France. Uh, the wait out uh, like 10 miles out was not too long. Uh, you would get right in them and get out and then we have what we call a circle maneuver. The small boats would continue circling until everybody was ready and then we would head in and just about full power. I heard a lot of talk and then saw on the television and, and indeed heard the correspondents talking about uh, the fact that the weather was better, but it was still a little uh, choppy out there that day, and there were a lot of uh, people plagued with seasickness uh, to go along with uh, fright and whatever else uh, was occurring at that time. Oh, yes. With the uh, LCVPs and some of the other amphibious craft, they're very flat bottoms, so they can go in clear onto the sand uh, on the beach, and then they lower their front gate down, and uh, the soldiers are supposed to walk off on nice dry sand. But uh, uh, work this, that way. this not, doesn't happen at all times that you either hit a little bar, uh, some reason or other that you can't get in at uh, lots of times. Uh, the waves, uh, since it is a flat boat, it's a square uh, bow or a front uh, with a big gate that drops down when you want to unload. The water, you hit the water in the other way is very flat which makes it spray, uh, you're bouncing around lots. We did have some pretty good waves, uh, rolling type of waves, it was not that bad, but to a soldier uh, that is not used to this type of thing, it's very discouraging. In the second place, they're, they're usually squatted down uh, below the armor sides in the front. And the only one that really that you see going in on an invasion like that is the uh, one that steers a ship, the coxswain, and uh, he has to, he's, he even squats down, but uh, he has to have his head up above to see where he's going. And very, very crowded, was it not? Yes, 30 people plus the three or four crewmen on board these boats uh, fills it up pretty heavy. And what was your experience with your own particular boat? Did you make it to the beach? We didn't quite make it. We got about 60 yards from the beach and then something happened. Uh, uh, I feel that it was a mine rather than 88, uh, which is a cannon that uh, the Germans have. Uh, my belief that we was hit by a mine that was 
the Germans had put mines out 60 yards out and the whole length of the of the uh, beach but uh, we got in uh, no problem as far as the crew is concerned uh, other than being wet and uh, not really knowing what happened uh, the poor soldiers of course uh, I have no idea what happened to them <coughs> and you wound up on the beach yourself uh, on yeah. hands and knees not quite knowing how you got there that's true uh, I know I had my hands in the sand of France that's for sure and uh, it was a concussion, and uh, there was no problem. I recovered very quickly, and uh, uh, then we had to decide what to do, and we decided to go on in. Talked to Dick McBann a little later about uh, his uh, later experiences. He was supposed to uh, go back uh, to the ship, but he ended up staying on uh, the beach for uh, quite some time. Denzel Diaz, who lives uh, over in Urbana, was with the 116th Infantry, the 29th Division, uh, some of the people that landed on Omaha Beach. Uh, Denzel, what uh, what was your experience? Uh, what are your recollections about uh, that day? You were in one of the very first waves, were you not? Well, we were in there uh, pretty early. Uh, we boarded the transport on Friday and uh, were on there until uh, until the landings on Tuesday. And uh, the ship didn't leave uh, the harbor until uh, sometime uh, the night before the before the invasion on the 6th and uh, we got off as uh, as uh, Dick said uh, way out in into these boats uh, and we were all in LCBPs uh, and were lowered down into the ocean from from the ship and then circled and circled and circled for at least an hour it seemed like forever and uh, did you get seasick absolutely everybody was seasick and uh, we, uh, we had on gas capes to keep from getting spray all over us. So uh, you'd see a guy come fighting out of that gas cape so he could lean over the side and heave overboard. It, uh, uh, the, uh, not a pleasant uh, feeling, but I guess uh, once you arrived there, that was replaced with other feelings about uh, saving yourself and getting on yeah. the beach and doing your job. Yeah. Yeah, the Most people who get seasick uh, want to lay down someplace. There was none of that. Yeah, the memory of that uh, circling is uh, <clears throat> most vivid with a sense of smell. Was that diesel fumes hanging over the ocean there, just uh, like a blue haze, and that helped make you seasick too. I would think so. You went in on Omaha. Now I read that uh, some of the heaviest casualties of the invasion occurred at Omaha. What was your experience? Uh, our battalion got in uh, in relatively good shape. We didn't land where we were supposed to, which was lucky as could be, because where we were supposed to would have been fatal, probably. But uh, we landed on a beach that wasn't real heavily defended. There were some snipers, and one machine gun was firing down the beach, but uh, he uh, didn't seem to be hitting anybody. I don't know whether he was uh, uh, unable to actually see the beach and had a line of fire set up in advance but uh, everybody managed to crawl under it. And crawl is the right term because we were wearing these assault jackets uh, and when uh, they got full of water, which they did, uh, I, I couldn't even stand up. I uh, was so heavy that uh, with all the gear and this jacket pockets full of water, uh, I crawled across the beach because that's the only way I could make it. Now, when you arrived on the beach, what was the uh, the situation there? Were you able to go right in and move on so some other people could uh, come behind you, or were you pinned down for a while? 
Uh, we <clears throat> we considered ourselves pinned down. We made it up to the seawall, which was a concrete wall about three feet high, and uh, there the uh, and beyond that was uh, barbed wire uh, entanglements. And uh, at this point, uh, the the men started uh, trying to clean their rifles so they could fire because they were all full of sand and. Uh, these M1s wouldn't operate uh, with the sand without being cleaned. Mrs. Alex Ringer, who lives in uh, Champaign, was in France at the, at the time, and uh, I understand, Mrs. Ringer, that uh, you were in school, but your family had, uh, had called you back to, uh, what, for safety reasons, is that right? Yes, and then my father was afraid that I would uh, get mixed up in the underground, and that I was obviously too young to carry on such a duty and might rather endanger my brother or himself in their own activity in the underground. I waited until I was not a minor anymore, <laughs> which Make came during the war, uh -huh. and immediately uh, joined the Comba group. The name of the group was Comba. Now your father was a retired French uh, general, general, yes, and uh, he too uh, took part in underground activities. Yes, right? but I never mentioned a word to him, and he didn't mention a word to me, and it was all for the best, because the less we talk to people, uh, the less least we carry with us most of the casualty who were sent to concentration camp uh, came from the fact that people that least of friends in the same movement with their address and everybody was caught at their address. So we never spoke. First of all, I didn't want my father to know about it. <laughs> and I had mentioned something to my mother who was very discreet and didn't say anything, knew I, she wouldn't stop me. Many of my friends were also in the underground. Uh, either in medical school or school of social work or at the hospital where I worked uh, to become a, a surgicus. What uh, what were the duties yes. of the underground? Why? Uh, what did you? Well, the underground. The underground. Uh, personally, I was a courier. I carried the news. <laughs> I was part of the media. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, the world of the underground was to prepare the ground for the arrival of uh, the uh, Allied. Uh, long before there was any hope the Allied could reach the territory of France or any other occupied uh, country of Europe. You know they it was coming sometime, but they you were, didn't know it. We knew, we hoped, yes, <laughs> we uh -huh. prayed for, uh, but we knew it would come. Uh, they were there to disrupt uh, military activities, the transport of troops, the transport of material, uh, they were uh, organized uh, to try to withstand uh, the propaganda which was uh, enormous. The German carried uh, about to get volunteer. You can imagine how ready we were to volunteer for the Russian front. Their own men were doing all they could to escape or not going if possible. So a French volunteer felt no uh, compunction, you know, to... And when you began to, for example, refuse to go to, go to the Russian front as a volunteer or to build the Atlantic Wall, the famous wall, you hit unhappily, which was...
the German were after you. The Gestapo, sometimes helped by the French Vichy police. Not all of them, but certainly a large number, a good number of uh, police people in the Vichy regime were working with the Germans, sometimes for them with such a zeal that uh, I regret to say uh, they did a better job than the German often. I want to come back to you in, in just a moment and, and ask you uh, what the feeling was, not only at uh at your house where you heard it on the radio and uh, the other people in France about when the invasion finally came. We'll, we'll get back to that in just a moment, but I want to talk to for just a moment with uh, Jim Myers, who uh, lives in Ogden, is the president of the First National Bank over there. Never hurts to get in a plug, does it, Jim, for the old Thank bank? You. appreciate that. And uh, you were a squadron bombardier and you flew with support missions. Uh, tell me uh, about the, the Air Force itself and about how many, uh, you know, people were, were there and ready. When I read these numbers, it's just staggering to think about the, the number of people that were assembled for this uh, invasion. Well, in the, uh, in the European theater, there were, out of England, there were two major Air Forces, the Ninth Air Force and the Eighth Air Force. The Ninth, Eighth, Ninth was a tactical Air Force. The Eighth was a bombing Air Force. Uh, most of the... Uh, uh, groundwork that was done by the 9th Air Force, which I wasn't a part of. I was only in the heavy bombing part, uh, which done some support missions, but not what we call tactical bombing or tactical uh, operations. And uh, the 9th Air Force, of course, was the supporting Air Force for the invasion when it happened, and the 8th Air Force was kind of went ahead like a steamroller ahead of it to to clear things out beyond it, but when you're down the nitty-gritty like these people here, uh, the Ninth Air Force did the low-altitude work and supported the uh, people that were on the ground. Tell me about uh, the one mission where you were supposed to uh, bomb and you decided not to. Well, I was, I was very aware uh, of all the people down, like the people around me here, on the ground, and I was uh, briefed at one time uh, to bomb uh, beyond the road in uh, St. Lowe, which uh, had a had a point of uh, uh, of a road going from uh, Pierre's to St. Lowe with a slight hook in the road near Pierre's. And I was also briefed not to do it visually, to only do it visually, and positively not bomb unless I had a good visual target. Uh, I happened to be leading uh, about uh, 250 aircraft that day as a bombardier, and as I got over there, I could only identify the town of Pereiras, which was on the left of me, which would be on the north, and St. Louis, of course, on the south. And I, uh, I just wanted to drop those bombs so badly, but I, I couldn't see the road, and it was for a period there of about four or five miles. And I didn't drop my bombs, and I came back, and uh, the my superiors just raised came with me. They just give me hail Columbia, and uh, uh, I said, "Well, I, there's a lot of people down on the ground that I knew, and I wasn't going to bomb somebody if I didn't know where I was at." And the next day, the Ninth Air Force went in and bombed visually at low altitude, and the wind was coming a long direction. They were bombing with flares and they killed several of our, our boys. It was just disastrous. And General McNair, who was a division commander there at St. Louis, and it, the gentleman then came back to me, the major, or not the major, but the, the colonel, and said, Jim, he said, I guess you were right. He said, I'm sorry I got on your case yesterday, but I was glad I didn't do it. 
What was your relationship with uh, Jimmy Stewart, the uh, the squadron uh, commander, who uh, I guess uh, a lot of people know uh, took part in yeah. on that basis, but uh, some don't. I mentioned the name Jimmy Stewart the other day, and they said, you don't mean the Jimmy Stewart, the movie actor, but he indeed was uh, played an integral part uh, in, the, in the squadron, was a commander at one time. Jim, Jim was a very fine officer and a very fine leader, and I admire him very, very much. He was with me before we went into combat as a captain, and uh, he left our squadron uh, in combat with, uh, as, a, as a light colonel as a squadron commander, of course, and he was an excellent pilot. Uh, he was a good man's man, and one time when his men didn't get promoted, he never even changed his underwear for six weeks because he wouldn't change until they got the promotion, so he was a man's man. He smelled bad, but he's a man's man. But anyway, we'll take a little break here and come back and talk some more about D-Day plus 40 years. Hour number two this morning, D-Day plus 40 years. We're visiting with Ray Hayes, Denzel Dees, Mrs. Alex Ringer, Dick McNatton, and Jim Myers, and we're talking about their recollections and their memories of D-Day. Uh, Ray Hayes, you had the opportunity to meet uh, King George and uh, Churchill. They came around to see how things were going, I guess. Uh, what was that experience like? Uh, that was a very interesting experience. Uh, we had uh, a number of people in there, not too many, maybe... Uh, eight or ten people were present, including General Eisenhower, and uh, Churchill was there, and uh, King George. And then the following day, uh, the day after the invasion, uh, King George and uh, a few of his people also came back to see how things were going as far as the front and uh, that sort of thing was concerned. And I. Uh, I had an opportunity to talk to the king. He asked a number of questions about the map, and since I was the main officer there, I answered his questions. Uh, so we had a little conversation. It was rather interesting to be able to have talked to King George of England. Voices for uh, television for this morning because uh, Ray has uh, brought along some photographs of the maps on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis, beginning on uh, the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th of June, and so forth. Shows. Uh, where all the landings were, how uh, how it progressed, how the invasion uh, moved from uh, this day to that, and they are indeed very interesting. And then uh, you had a uh, part, Ray, uh, in keeping that room uh, preserved or restoring it. Could you tell me about that? Well, uh, first of all, about the photographs. Uh, they took a photograph daily of the major map for historical purpose, and this was taken daily from the day of the invasion all the way through until the surrender. And so those are on file somewhere and I have uh, secreted away a number of copies of those. <laughs> We're privileged to see them this morning. <laughs> and uh, then the room itself, uh, I believe if you, well, walk, if you went over there today, would you see the room much in the same fashion as it was? Uh, well, of course, as the headquarters moved, we set up new rooms. Uh, headquarters, first of all, of course, was near London, and then we had uh, a headquarters on the coast of France, and then headquarters at Versailles, and then at the city that the Americans called Reims. <laughs> And uh, this was the location where the uh, surrender was signed. The Germans came. Uh, uh, there was uh, Admiral von Friedeberg, head of the Navy, and uh, General Yodel in charge of the Army, 
and they signed along with uh, the Allied representatives, a Russian, a French, and a number of British officers and American officers. And this uh, surrender was signed in this room, the war room, and I was privileged to be present during the signing. And after we moved on to Germany, I was sent back to restore this room as it was at the time of the signing. And I did this uh, from memory and photographs. And after it was restored, it was returned to the uh, French as a museum. And they still maintain this as a museum. What was your uh, recollection of the, the feeling in the room that day? I believe it was Charles Collingwood on the, the hour just prior to this one who said he remembered it as a sort of a, a feeling of uh, euphoria that uh, indeed all this time had elapsed and, and obviously all these people had given their lives and now suddenly it was, uh, well not suddenly, but now it was over and uh, there was indeed hope for the future. Well, there was, uh, of course, a feeling of euphoria and it was... Uh, it was delayed. The signing was delayed for several hours, and uh, finally one evening they told us we could go to bed, that it wouldn't happen. Then they came along and woke us up, as I recall, about two o'clock in the morning. So Sounds like the Army, doesn't it? <laughs> and <laughs> Hurry the, up and wait. <laughs> the actual signing, uh, it was, it was uh, rather interesting, and there was a lot of uh, elation or euphoria, if you wish. But there was also a tremendous amount of confusion because they had allowed in so many uh, uh, media people and they were taking photographs and that sort of thing. And it, it was a rather interesting thing. And the, uh, the German General Yodel wanted to uh, make a little speech, which they permitted him to do. And he told about how the Germans had sacrificed so much and accomplished so much, and he hoped that this would be considered in the treatment of the German people after the war. And another point that was interesting somewhat, since uh, Admiral Donitz, who was the actual head of the German uh, nation at that time, did not come to sign the surrender, General Eisenhower didn't come, and he sent his chief of staff, General Smith, as the major uh, general from the Americans to sign the surrender. Mrs. Ringer, what was the uh, feeling, uh, what feeling did you have, you who had worked in the, the French underground, and the rest of your family and friends and, and colleagues when you learned, I believe, via the radio, that uh, the invasion had indeed taken place? Well, it's very difficult to, to express there were so many emotions, of course, uh, joy, uh, incredible amount of joy. I don't think I'll ever feel that again in my life or ever did before. And then also apprehension, the fact that, I mean, this operation was so dangerous, that uh, how is it going to turn uh, up? Uh, and my father being an officer and uh, having commanded during World War One and worked in uh, Ministry of War in the interval, also had the feeling that there would be an enormous amount of losses. He knew Normandy quite well. We used to take vacation there in summer. And he was a good painter. He used, he, he was a watercolor a painter. And so he had an eye for uh, the relief of the area and having been a pilot also and he had a good idea of uh, 
the ground. And he said to me, I just can't believe that they are doing it in such a weather, exactly where they are, La Pointe du Hoc. Uh, they don't have Alpine troops who are trained to uh, climb, and the, the German must be at them with a machine gun. And he knew of the tides, he knew of the cliffs, well, he knew of the course, whole yes, uh, situation. Yes, it's a very deep beach. Uh, the, uh, the beach in Normandy are marvelous, they are mile, mile long. They are mile, mile long, and the tide is uh, 22 or 21 uh, feet, I heard yesterday, almost like the Bay of Fundy in, this, in uh, Canada. And uh, uh, the weather was bad. There was uh, the beginning of the moon, as you can see now, and the reason for which they were going to postpone it, I think, is that they had tried to do it a month before. They didn't go then, they're going to have to wait another 30 another days or so. Another 30 days, and would the weather be cooperating? Not necessarily so. So we were really very worried, and uh, we had map, of course, of the area, which were old map, but good enough to, uh, you know, according to the name which were quoted, realize uh, their advance. Of course, we didn't know if they were Canadian or uh, or British or American or Polish or French. There are many people that, uh, that feel that had this invasion failed, that it would not only have, uh, well, might have changed the whole course of history, for one thing, or it uh, certainly would have uh, would have prolonged the war for, for oh, quite some time. Oh, definitely, a very long time. I would ask Denzel Dees, uh, Denzel landed on Omaha Beach, uh, and as he told you, uh, within the first uh, few minutes, and then uh, was there for uh, until July, I believe, Denzel, when you were wounded and had to be evacuated. That's and right. He brought his uh, Purple Heart along this morning for me to see, and he was telling me an amusing story about, uh, we tell him about uh, how they used to go along and pin these things on you in the hospital like it was uh, a, a poppy or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the... Uh hospital uh, commander or one of his underlings I don't think he was even a very high officer would come by and uh, pin the purple heart on all the guys in bed on their pajamas and uh, always say uh, congratulations <laughs> shake hands we always got a laugh out of that because uh, congratulations for being awkward and getting hit or something like that seemed to be the idea but uh, what kinds of things did you go through from the time you landed on the 6th until uh, July was there heavy fighting and how far were you able to progress at that? Uh, yes, I uh, was there from June 6th to July 13th and uh, the uh, we went in uh, with about uh, 200 guys and uh, we were nine, uh, nine officers, three over strength and uh, by the time uh, I got hit uh, I was the 10th officer hit in the company, which meant we'd had replacements in and out already that didn't last longer than a day or two in officers. Same was true of men. We had a man come up one time and uh, we were going into an attack and uh, the first sergeant told him to just stay back out of the way someplace and the lieutenant got hold of him, one of the new lieutenants, and said, get up front. He got hit didn't get killed, but he was out of there. He wasn't in combat five minutes. And uh, that's how fast it could happen. And uh, didn't take long for a person to become a veteran, as we called it. You know, if you lasted an hour in combat, why, you, you were pretty well used to hitting the ground and all that stuff. A lot of it is, a, is a luck, is it not? I was uh, looking at the films last night. People, you know, hundreds of uh, young men,
making more postponed because of weather. But we knew that it was going to be on sooner or later when uh, weather conditions permitted. I remember John Mason Brown, who was uh, the Admiral's aide, got me out of, they put us all in Durance Vile, we were sort of in jail. And uh, he got me out, we went to a party at Daphne du Maurier's, which was not too far away from <laughs> the port we were leaving. Had a marvelous lunch party, went back. Then we got back on the ships and uh, were told it was on for the 6th. That was on the 5th, of course, when we reboarded. Of course, the entire world knew when uh, General Eisenhower, the commander of the Allied forces, uh, made his proclamation of the operation across the channel. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. CBS News had taken the air shortly after midnight with the first bulletin, which came, of course, from the Germans. Then, along about uh, 3 o'clock, we began, for the first time, a continuous service which lasted over seven hours from shortly after 3 until shortly after 10 in the morning. Once again in the studio, adjoining Columbia's newsroom at Columbia's news headquarters in New York City, this is Bob Trout speaking again. And now, once again, you'll hear the noise of the bells as I open the door, take the microphone out on the long cable to the newsroom itself. That seems to be the quickest way to get the news to you as it's coming in so rapidly. We started this as a very informal tour about 45 minutes ago when uh, we didn't know that it was invasion. As a matter of fact, the Germans were the only people who had been uh, putting out the reports. We've had the first dispatch from London. We sometimes have to interrupt each other here during this uh, informal broadcast when we get word to switch rapidly to London. There are only a few seconds in which to do it, and so uh, our broadcast may be abrupt at some point or another, but we're trying to keep you abreast of the news as quickly as possible, and so when we get word that London has something, we just cut whatever we can and go as quickly as possible. One of the first broadcasts to come out of Europe was the one from Richard C. Hotelet, who was aboard a Marauder bomber, and that came on at uh, 5.08 a.m. Eastern Wartime. This is Richard C. Hotelet speaking from London. The Allied forces landed in France early this morning. I watched the first landing barges hit the beach exactly on the minute of H-hour. I was in a ninth Air Force marauder flying at 4,500 feet along 20 miles of the invasion coast. Below us, the English Channel was a fine, deep blue. There were a few white caps, but we got the impression that it wasn't very rough down below. About five miles off the French coast, we saw a plane in a steep dive laying a smokescreen. Just about the same minute, a pilot said he saw fires on the shore. I looked as hard as I could, and there, down to the left, were some naval vessels. They looked like cruisers firing broadsides onto the shore. Their guns belched, flame and smoke. We opened our bomb bay doors. Light flank began to come up after us, little balls of fire off to our right and to our left. The bombs and the shells burst together on the target. There were sheets of flame down below, then rolling balls of brown and black smoke. Four and a half thousand feet up, our plane was rocked by the concussion, and we got the stench of the explosives. We dropped our bombs as scheduled. And just then we saw, down below on our left, dozens and scores of white streaks as the assault boats raced over the blue water to the beach, leaving their white wakes stretched out behind them. As we turned away from the target, we saw the boats hit the beach. 
Then we took evasive action I couldn't see any more. Down below, except for some more sporadic flak, it was a dead country. No sign of life. No vehicles on roads, no troop movements. The mission wasn't the way we had figured it. We had expected to see German fortifications give back blow for blow with our ships. There was no sign of it. The circumstances of our flight, the fact that we got there simultaneously with the invading troops and left in a minute, make it impossible to draw any far-reaching conclusions on how the battle is going. But one thing we can say already, and that is that our air supremacy over the coastal invasion zone today is not seriously challenged. I return you now to the United States. That, of course, was um, the first and preliminary report. It turned out to be more accurate for Utah Beach, which is the beach we bombed, than for Omaha, where in the subsequent minutes and hours, the landing troops uh, encountered some heavy resistance from the Germans who just happened to be having maneuvers in the area. But the success of the landing and the, the fantastic unreality of the, of the unopposed landing at Utah um, was a, a testimonial really to the to one of the great stories the hidden stories of the of the invasion with the the deception plan uh, the Germans never knew uh, exactly where they were going to be hit there was a radius from the from southeast England in which they could reckon with a, a large-scale invasion but uh, the the, uh, the intelligence maneuvers the disinformation programs the the uh, rubber and and uh, and uh, wooden mock-ups of, of tanks that had been that had been stationed farther east uh, had confused them to the point where they were not ready for what hit them precisely where and precisely when we did. How did it look on the beach itself, Bill Shadell? Well, uh, Dick here has painted an excellent picture of the activity, the just scores and scores and hundreds of little boats scurrying around the destroyers coming in and trying to hit the beach defenses and the cruisers off at about 5,000 yards off the beach and so on. As a matter of fact, on the cruiser Tuscaloosa, we had a very similar view to that. But I take exception to the calm seas that <laughs> he described from what? 4,500 feet. 4, feet. And those little ducks and all these small vehicles just and those poor boys were so sick. And, and you know, uh, Bill, that they put us into those things about 10 miles offshore. Yes, I know. Because they had such respect for the uh, supposed uh, German long-range guns that it was a good two-hour trip in, and the men were seasick and uh, because it wasn't quite as smooth as it looked from here. But Utah Beach was easy in comparison yep. to Omaha because we should not ignore the, the part of the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne that dropped back on the 82nd case back of San Mary Glees, which was a key point so that the, the uh, Germans would not be reinforced from the Cherbourg Peninsula and so on. And uh, their losses were staggering. And uh, it's true that we just happened to find a soft spot on Utah Beach, and as Charles mentioned earlier, they were, what, four or five miles inland within the first day? Six miles. But the idea was to make a juncture with your paratroopers back there and the glider boys, 
and uh, the the only shell fire that we saw in the first few hours was from some main batteries mainly out of very close to Sherb, Sherberg Peninsula but otherwise I uh, yes Utah was uh, was easy in comparison with Omaha D-Day plus 40 years will continue after this uh, George, I know we haven't spoken to each other in years, but we are business partners and there are things we should talk about. Mm -hmm. Well, first we need a new phone system. <laughs> yes, I know all about the telephone company breakup. Active ...of the invasion of French Normandy on June 6, 1944, when the combined Allied Expeditionary Force stormed ashore to liberate Western Europe from the hold of Nazi power. We're here with some of the correspondents who took part in the historic accounting of that day and reported the battle progress for CBS. Eric Severide, Richard C. Hotelet, Charles Collingwood, Bill Shadell, and Charles Shaw. Gentlemen, Charles Collingwood in particular here, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the morale, the actions of the... Draw me a composite picture of the American GI at the time of the, the channel crossing. Scared, but confident. Didn't know what to expect. Uh, had been warned that there might be very heavy casualties, as indeed uh, on other beaches there were. I think uh, 2,500 killed on uh, Omaha Beach, only a couple hundred on Utah. But uh, his morale was very good. But once he came under fire, uh, there was a seawall on Utah Beach. He took cover behind the seawall, as did uh, the York correspondent. Uh, facing you. The better part of wisdom. <laughs> uh, and then the officers had to get us up, even though, as uh, Shadell has told us, uh, we were not under uh, the kind of fire they were at uh, Omaha. Uh, they had to get us up and get us moving toward the exits over the dunes, and uh, then we pushed our way inland. This is Charles Collingwood. We are on the beach today, on D-Day. We've just come in. We caught a ride in a small boat which came in from our LST loaded with a thousand pounds of TNT. Half a ton of high explosive on this beach which is still under considerable enemy gunfire. And as he stood on the beach there, Collingwood uh, could look up once in a while and he saw wave after wave of gliders going in. While we have been here, we have just seen one of the strangest and most remarkable sights of this invasion so far. Two great fleets of over a hundred gliders have gone overhead, towed by C-47 transports, who are certainly proving the workhorses of its invasion. They've hauled them right over the beaches, and the second batch are droning over now. I can see them. They're casting off the gliders as they circle around over the beach, and the transports are circling around and beginning to to, to make off homes. And here comes another flight, the third flight of gliders, which uh, is being pulled in. I can't count how many of them there are. They're coming in over the beach here. More and more and more. Of Charles Collingwood, how did those glider troops make out? Were you familiar with that? Well, they suffered an awful lot of casualties, Doug. Uh, because the Germans had staked out all the fields. By staking out, I mean they had put stakes in them so that when a glider hit one of those, it just ripped it to shreds. Mind you, these things had no power, they had no armor, they were just wooden shells with people in them. So it did take a lot of casualties. 
but also they uh, helped, uh, they teamed up with the uh, 87th of the 182nd of the 101st Airborne Division and uh, were able to play great havoc behind the enemy lines. I've often thought that really the great Allied victory at Utah was an airborne victory as much as it was uh, uh, a victory of the assault troops. But Doug, you ask about morale and uh, Richard C. Hartle. Got to consider the background against this, which this whole uh, drama was played out. Hitler did us one priceless favor. He made everyone perfectly aware of what he was fighting for, and what he was fighting for was clear and may have marked, uh, you know, a more a more controversial risk. Uh, just never arose. You were scared. Uh, but you did what you had to do because it was perfectly obvious. It was unanimously agreed that it had to be done. Eric Severide, you were in Rome at the time of the, the Channel crossing. Give us the picture there. The idea of the 5th Army and the British 8th Army going to Rome around that time was to force Hitler to divert divisions from Normandy and from northern France generally to protect industrial North Italy. How many he diverted for that purpose, I don't know. But what uh, obsessed us all was the way Rome was taken. I had no doubt later on that General Mark Clark, whose command there, knew when D-Day was to hit. And he was determined to get the first enemy capital and to be captured before D-Day took the entire play away. He, he switched uh, his armor on both sides of the Alban Hills to go straight for Rome which we'd been told over and over again by Alexander and General Harding and others was a secondary objective. But it became the first objective. And he, we got into Rome, I think it was a Sunday night, uh, on the 4th, I believe, maybe close to midnight. And everybody wrote like mad. I was lucky because in Anzio I'd been living with a radio crew who had a half-track with a transmitter in it that wasn't supposed to be working. But uh, but one of the guys there had told me that he could put a signal into Naples with it, where RCA had its stuff. I sat writing take after take of the typewriter, and I couldn't voice broadcast then, and would hand it to censor and then throw it in the half-track of this guy to censor. I think I got some pretty good early stuff in New York. I've never been quite sure about it. We didn't then everything collapsed, a D-Day happened, the news came, the reporters just quit writing, a great stillness overcame us all. <laughs> Our audience had fled across the street to a different theater. And that was, that was it. Right, Eric. Well, let's flee with the audience back to Normandy Beach where Charles Collingwood was that day. We're standing here. It's an absolutely incredible and fantastic sight. I don't know whether it's possible to describe it to you or not. It's late in the afternoon. The sun is going down. The sea uh, is, is choppy, and the beach is lined with men and materials and uh, guns, trucks, vehicles of all kinds. Uh, on either side of us, there are pillars of smoke perhaps a mile, two miles away, which is rising from enemy shelling. And further back, we can see the smoke and results of our own shelling. This place even smells like an invasion.
popular saying, and you always hoped it had somebody else's. Talking about D-Day plus 40 years, we'll do more of that right after we take this break. Please stand by. Thank you. Well, here's good news and bad news. Here's the bad. Eisner has closed four of the most popular food stores in East Central Illinois. Now, here's the good news. On the table now, and, uh, and ask you, uh, you four gentlemen at least, uh, who are fighting with the, the American forces uh, back in those days, uh, what your feeling is on this day, some 40 years later? I, I know it always takes a, a special day, like a D-Day anniversary maybe, to, <coughs> to remind us of uh, some of the sacrifices that, that people made and uh, some of your buddies that uh, didn't make it back and those kind of things. Uh, Jim Myers, what runs through your mind on, on this day? Well, a, a deep sense of gratitude for being here today and a deep sense of uh, feeling a tremendous debt for the people who are sitting around here and the ones that aren't here. I uh, can't relate as much to the beaches as the other people here. I, I do know from my own personal experience that we had 33 crews go over, and uh, at very short time we had four left, and four only finished our tour of 30 missions. I feel a deep sense uh, to the people of France and the people of England and the other allies who helped us so much and who were so cooperative with us, and a deep sense of, uh, of patriotism that I've always had for my country. Uh, that will never leave a veteran. Uh, so I feel I'm uh, so much nostalgia that you can't hardly really express it. Dick McFadden, how do you feel today? Well, I think we all feel about the same way. Uh, I feel that the uh, admiration and the concern is for the ones that went over and ended up uh, hurt, uh, didn't come back. Uh, these are the ones we should pray for and uh, uh, feel proud to have known or known because they were in our services. Basically, that's it. I have a, a deep concern on that. Denzel? Well, I certainly uh, feel that uh, uh, a deep gratitude toward uh, those who, who lost their lives because I knew many, many, many of them and uh, at the time we, there was just uh, no time to uh, grieve or hardly give it a second thought. You just uh, went right on. But uh, in looking back on it, it uh, it's, a, it's a sad, uh, nostalgic experience to look back on it really and think of all the young men that did die there. Rick? Well, of course, like the others, uh, the first feeling is that uh, you were very fortunate that nothing happened to you and you were able to return. Uh, of course, I was in the headquarters, but I went to England in a combat unit, and the man who took my place, a friend of mine, went in, and the first day in combat, uh, I would have been where he was, and he was hit in the first day. So you have to look at that aspect, and then you get and you think of all these people, uh, some of which you knew, many of which you did not know, who did not survive, and uh, there, there is a, a, 
a feeling of elation, but there's also a feeling of sadness. Mrs. Ringer, were the Americans considered uh, heroes? Is that the way the people in, oh, yeah. in France looked upon them? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, what you could not have uh, less opinion of them than that. I mean, hero was a word. I mean, what they did was unbelievable, unexpected, was asking asking them to do more than uh, sacrifice their life. I mean, they were really uh, going in at the age of 18, 19, 20. Uh, it was not as general as Anna was said yesterday to defend their own country. It was simply to free us, and I don't think we'll ever be thankful enough for what they did. I just throw this out for uh, anybody to uh, pick up on, but what has happened to that, uh, that feeling that we had back in those days? I know that uh, Ernie Pyle and other uh, war correspondents and, and some of the, indeed some of the people that we heard in the first hour this morning uh, would think uh, they would never write anything about uh, their government uh, doing this. Of course, it was, the, it was the, some people called it the right war. It was certainly good against evil. I think uh, that, that was in that first hour this morning as well. But have we lost that feeling of uh, patriotism? It seems now that every time uh, our president says that he wants to do this or wants to do that, that all of a sudden, uh, not only the Congress, but, uh, but others of us uh, out in this country rise up and say, uh, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. Anybody want to take a, a crack at that? Have we lost what we had, that, uh, that feeling of, uh, I guess, unity would be one, uh, Jim? I think it's a case of national pride. I, I, I feel strongly that, that our generation that's sitting here at this table are real proud that we're Americans. We're real proud. We're proud enough to sacrifice for the country. I don't think the generations that's followed us have been taught that. I don't think they respect it. And I don't know what the answer is to it. But it's very, very sad to me to observe it. Anybody else want to pick up on that? Ray, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I, I do think that uh, if we were in a clear-cut situation, and uh, the time of World War II, I think, was rather clear-cut. If we were in that sort of a situation, I think the feeling of a lot of these people would change and that you would see a resurgence of this national pride that you referred to. I hope you're right. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you're referring to uh, the police action, as it was called yeah. in, in Korea, the... Uh, the war or, or whatever they end up calling it in Vietnam where there was always there was a division before we went into it and I guess uh, what you're telling me is that we did not have that same problem back uh, in the in the Second World War that everyone thought yes we have to go uh, stamp out evil and everybody sort of uh, got behind it and did it. Uh, at the time of World War II I think uh, there was a general feeling of everyone that this was right and we were we were doing something that was right now, uh, and these other actions you t that you referred to, a lot of people felt that they were not right. And therefore, you had a divisive situation, and you didn't have the national pride that we had during World War II. Hard to visualize people back in World War II uh, hustling off to Canada to avoid the draft or to, <laughs> not to, uh, to volunteer, isn't it? Yes, it is. We're on Penny of Your Thoughts. We're talking about D-Day plus 40 years. We'll continue after this. I'm Jim Turpin. We're visiting this morning with Jim Myers and Dick McNatton, Mrs. Alex Ringer, Denzel Dees, and Ray Hayes. And we're talking about 
D-Day plus 40 years as it affects uh, people here locally. And uh, during that break, we were talking about uh, patriotism and hearing the national anthem and taps and, and those kinds of things. And the people who have been through this are still, uh, they, they tell me, uh, affected by that in, in, uh, in a very strong way. Mrs. Ringer, we uh, have not uh, covered this aspect of it, and uh, it's perhaps a discussion that uh, would best be left for another day, probably a full program, but I'm interested in, uh, in uh, the German-Jewish problem, and uh, could you quickly tell me the role that you, uh, how you were involved in that? It's, it's very interesting to me, and as I say, I don't mean to, to shortchange it here, but uh, could you tell me how you were involved in it? With Anna. When I got assigned to the French zone in south of Ulm in Bibrach Amris, the team number 209, uh, there were two large Jewish camps there, and I was assigned to take care of them. I didn't ask for it. I didn't even know they existed there. I was assigned to take care of them. I think it takes a young social worker, green out of school, to handle 120,000 people as if she had done that all her 18 preceding years without winking an eye. And uh, I, uh, of course, had to uh, inform myself as quickly as possible uh, about uh, where these people came from, what had been their experience. I had b had an inkling of it because I had served as a volunteer social worker at the Hotel Lutetia in Paris, where all the displaced persons arrived back to France from concentration camp while I was being vaccinated to go uh, into UNRWA service three weeks it took I worked nights at Lutetia where all those people were coming from concentration camp and where we had to I hate to use that word because it makes you think of meatpacking to process them that is to make sure that they were not uh, German or collaborated, mixing with them, trying to make it out of Germany and Europe. And then we had also to identify them properly. They had done it, they had been identified uh, very succinctly by the army as they arrived, either the British, the American or the French, according to the zone in Germany. And we had to do, to complete that identification and so we had to speak to every individual coming. Where did most of these people go? Uh, where did they go? To concentration camp inside Germany. That's uh -huh. where they were sent for political reasons. Yes, but I mean... For the uh, fact that they were Jewish mm -hmm. citizens, or they were gypsies, or they were, uh, you know, uh, people uh, the German happened to consider uh, uh, Untermensch, that is... Uh, you, you ended up sending uh, some of them to Australia, did you not? Do you? Uh, uh, yes. Yes, my husband was my secretary, Professor Ringer, <laughs> was assigned to me as my secretary. I do my own driving. <laughs> and uh, uh, I uh, was very lucky because the commander of that area had been in my father's squadron in World War One, And by a sheer accident, I dare passing his car on the road, despite the fact that the license plate carried general identification with several stars and I was stopped and I was asked to follow the general it was going about 10 miles an hour and I had to go back to my base I had something to do in the evening 
some, uh, I think, Lithuanian were presenting a program. Mm -hmm. And he recognized my name, but for the sake of scaring me, <laughs> throwing me down also, I'm sure I was not going more than 50 miles an hour. He uh, asked me to come to his office two days later, which I did in my uniform. <laughs> my <laughs> Not knowing what to expect, I hadn't said a word to the director of my team about it because I thought he would be frightened by the, <laughs> the result of my daring. It turned out, of course, that the general recognized my name, told me he was a pilot in my father's squadron, and from that day on, I would be given carte blanche, I could call the Etat-Major headquarters and get everything I wanted, which was Mana <laughs> from heaven, yes. We're talking about D-Day plus 40 years, and we'll take this final break and come back with a final word this morning. Glamour. Jim Turpin, Ray Hayes, Denzel Dees, Mrs. Alex Springer, Dick McNatt, and Jim Myers are our guests. And we're wrapping up the second hour this morning of D-Day plus 40 years. Have any of you uh, been back? I know that each uh, year there seems to be a pilgrimage in this uh, being the 40th year, uh, they are inundated. Someone told me that, uh, that they wanted to go back this time, but they couldn't find a room within uh, 100 miles of, uh, of Normandy. Have any of you been back? I, Jim, you've been back? When was that? I was back to England. Oh, excuse me. I was back to England. My daughter studied in France, and I was lucky enough to spend some time in England and on the continent. And uh, I enjoyed especially Paris because I'd never been there before and I had bombed all the airports uh, very well a couple of times. <laughs> In fact, I was decorated for it once. And it was such a nice place, you couldn't even believe there ever been a war there. And of course, in landing at uh, Heathrow, it's such a gorgeous airport and uh, I, I just enjoyed my stay and uh, I enjoyed the people of Europe very much. You ever been back, Dick, or do you, would you like to go back? No, we uh, started getting our uh, uh, tickets this year to be there for the 40th, but uh, we, uh, 100 miles was the closest hotel room we could find. And I said, there's going to be too many people there. I'm not going to see what I want to see. And so we decided probably we will go in September. Yeah, go back at a less uh, crowded time. Yes. Uh, makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Uh, the, uh, the cemetery there is... Uh, Every time I see that on television, I hope one day to see it in, in person, but it just... Uh, Beautiful. It really is, isn't it? Uh, some, I've forgotten the number now, 9,000 or something like that. Uh, maybe it's more than that, but the, the show last night, uh, Walter Cronkite and, and General Eisenhower walking on that, uh, near that cemetery, cemetery some about 20 years ago was a, a site that you can just, you just never forget. Uh, they didn't even need to talk. They just uh, sort of walked along there. I, I want to... Uh, Really, uh, this last call I got just off the air, we were not going to take calls this morning because uh, we have so many guests and we have such a short uh, time in which to, to tell this story. But a, a, a fellow called and said that he wanted to let everyone know that, uh, that you people are appreciated for what you have done. And I'm sure there are many, many others out there this morning that, uh, that feel that same way about it. It's uh, one of those things that People are not likely, Jim Myers, to walk into your bank and say, hey, thanks, Jim, for all the work you did, or Dick, when you're out here fixing our lights or anything, somebody's not going to come up and say, hey, we appreciate what you did, fellas did, but just getting that uh, that call, and uh, you put it uh, so succinctly, and, and I'm confident there are many, many others out there. And I, for one, would like to, to thank you very much for coming by this morning. I hope that people in our audience have uh, 
enjoyed this show. I know.